Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Apologetic series, recorded January 18th, 2022, titled, Does God Exist? Many Absolute Proofs, Part 4. This series has been answering the question, does God exist? Good clarification. I thought these were your entries in the tell me you don't understand science without telling me you don't understand science trend. Part four looks more closely at how true science in no way disproves God. Well, since the general God concept is non-falsifiable, nothing could disprove it. That's actually one of the philosophical weaknesses of the position. But you are correct on this technicality. I've even seen cartoon characters speak incredibly shallow commentary to drive a completely false point. Hey! David watches my show. Watch to the end. You heard the man. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. And today, that's part four of David C. Pack's Many Absolute Proofs of God series. First, let's look more in depth at how evolutionists get away with presenting their theory as established fact. Technically, no scientific theories are established fact. Scientific theories are meant to explain or predict facts, but they are not facts themselves. Even the theory of gravity isn't fact. It just explains and predicts our observations. But in the public square... The words theory and fact have a range of colloquial meanings and connotations, so David may be complaining about the same imprecise language use that I am. But more importantly, David wants to complain not about scientific merit, but rather about communication tactics. Writers, lecturers, and television programs on evolution use a variety of deceptive tricks. Writers, lectures, and television programs on creation use a variety of deceptive tricks. Programs about politics use deceptive tricks. Programs about news, medicine, relationships, finance, sports, movies, pets, and even baking use deceptive tricks. Messages about toothpaste use deceptive tricks. It's good to educate people to recognize particular communication strategies and their potential affect, but these are universal not limited to one particular worldview or another. Wittingly or unwittingly, to sell their audience what is unproven and unprovable. If you mean proof in the sense of the kind of certainty of mathematical proof, then no. That only applies to math. Everything else falls into categories of convincing or not convincing. Creation logic is mocked. What was it that David said about mocking evolutionists? If I sound like I'm mocking them, it's because I am. Any who mock God's existence surely believe we should at least have license to mock them. Theories are professed with no more than suggested proof, and sometimes not even this. David? A super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with chemistry and biology. Important history and figures are used to support mere conjecture. David? You will see that Darwin would today say his theory has failed utterly. Powerful music sometimes stirs emotions to glorious heights of association with supposed truth. David? The world to come. 
The Restored Church of God presents David C. Pack, author of 80 books and booklets, answering life's greatest questions straight from the Bible and announcing the wonderful good news of the world to come. Foolish comparisons are sprinkled throughout. Like a top or a yo-yo, the universe must have been wound up. Sadly, anti-creationists constantly denigrate any idea of creation by any means possible. Developed on their own, how utterly foolish to believe. Utterly impossible conclusions are presented for belief by simple assertion. Are you aware that I am rubber and you are glue and everything that you say to me bounces off of me and sticks to you? However sincere, scientists who were taught to reject the Creator's revealed instruction book present far-fetched theories about the beginning of all things. A quote describes how all humans, animals, and plants supposedly sprang from nothing. It gets repeated so often that I feel like I need to address it every time. But science doesn't posit that anything sprang from nothing. For example, in Big Bang cosmology, there is a singularity that expanded. There are competing hypotheses in the field, but none propose starting with nothing in a philosophical sense. No thing. Each has some sort of base, uncaused, brute fact. A quantum vacuum, energy, dark energy, something. Of course, in theistic cosmologies, that brute fact is a god. Millions are now embarrassed to admit belief in God, but especially the Genesis creation account. Including preeminent Christian philosopher William Lane Craig. I mean, when you read a story about two people in an arboretum with these magical trees whose fruit, if you eat it, will grant you immortality or knowledge of good and evil. And then there's this talking snake who comes along and tempts them into sin. And then you have this anthropomorphic God walking in the cool of the garden, calling out audibly to Adam in his, in his hideout. You think, well, of course this is figurative. Yet scenarios of how life supposedly began continue to change. Scenarios of how life began continue to change because scientists learn new things. It's astounding to me that some Christians criticize the incorporation of new data as a weakness. David implies that stubborn adherence that ignores new information is superior epistemology. This is from a book review. I don't understand why David is quoting a book review rather than the book itself. And this particular book was openly an attempt to popularize then-current scientific research for a more general audience. So instead of addressing published peer-reviewed science directly, you're now listening to my YouTube response to David quoting a newspaper's review of a book attempting to summarize the science in a way that is, quote, simplified for a lay audience. That's a lot of degrees of separation. Most people learn some version of the primordial soup theory, which posits that Earth's early oceans contained enough organic chemicals to form spontaneously some kind of primitive self-replicator. But biology has moved on. To be clear, David thinks this is the problem. That with new information and new discoveries, some scientists are adjusting old hypotheses to be more in line with the recent findings. And Mr. Lane, the author, gives a convincing account, based on basic chemical principles, of why this theory is almost certainly wrong. Primordial soup was proposed almost a hundred years ago, in 1924. It postulated life emerging from chemically rich, shallow pools on the Earth's surface. 
To be clear, science still considers this a possibility, even if less promising than newer ideas. Mr. Lane's preferred idea is that life got its start in warm vents at the bottom of the ocean, in which hot, mineral-infused water wells up from beneath the seafloor. To be clear, David thinks it's a big deal that a hundred years ago, scientists proposed that life may have began at the top of the ocean, but now scientists think the bottom of the ocean might be more likely. As the water cools, the minerals precipitate out, forming intricate honeycombed structures. These tiny mineral chambers provided an early version of the modern cell wall. You can just hear the music in the background. Again, David is reading a book review from a newspaper. I'm not aware of any book reviews set to music, but there are a lot of podcasts popping up these days, so perhaps I've just missed it. But if I'm supposed to distrust any words that can possibly be read to music, then the creation account from Genesis is first in line. And God saw that it was good. Let's return to examining the incredible complexity of life on Earth. Okay, you're a bit all over the place here, David. In part three, we saw the intricacy of the human eye. We did. And we learned how the features of the eye are very logically explained as a series of incremental improvements. We even demonstrated examples of these steps that can be found in nature today. What is currently complex wasn't necessarily always so. And the more mankind learns about how the human body functions, we must ask, how could it possibly have just evolved? The very nose on your face brings this question smashing into it. Is this going to be the same incredulity about the vision, but applied to smell? As if David is providing new information? Let's understand the human sense of smell. How does a nose bombarded with odors that arrive in different amounts and combinations? First, David appealed to a book review in The Economist, and now he's gone to the Wall Street Journal for a primer on olfactory science? Not exactly primary sources here. Consistently identify each aroma. It can essentially be broken down into a predictable mathematical pattern. Check the original video for the full reading, but the point David thinks is relevant is that each time you smell the same scent, it sends the same signals to the brain. But significantly, when the smell is repeated in the same dose, the pattern remains the same. In other words, the response is orderly and predictable rather than chaotic and irregular. And dumb evolution did this? One of the primary assumptions of science is uniformitarianism. The idea that the natural laws and processes that we observe have always applied in the past and will continue to apply in the future. We expect the properties of matter and energy and physics and chemistry to be predictable. So I have no idea whatsoever why David thinks that we should expect that if evolution is true, that the chemical reactions involved in sense would change minute to minute. Dr. Werner von Braun, recall he was the father of the American space program. Um, recall that Dr. Werner von Braun developed rockets and other war technology for Nazi Germany until he surrendered to the Americans in 1945. Is this relevant to his opinion on biology? No, but neither is his work at NASA. Many men who are intelligent and of good faith say they cannot visualize a designer. Well, can a physicist visualize an electron? The electron is materially inconceivable, and yet it is so perfectly known through its effects that we use it to illuminate our cities, guide our airliners through the night skies, and take the most accurate measurements. What strange rationale makes some physicists accept the inconceivable electron is real? Well, Werner just listed a bunch of technology made possible by the predictive power of atomic theory. 
Through this model, engineers know in advance precisely how electrons will behave under given conditions. And those predictions can be relied upon day in and day out without exception. That's the rationale. The God hypothesis makes no such predictions. The material realm operates the same with or without God as an assumption. There's no technology that can be invented using the insights provided by saying, God did it. While refusing to accept the reality of a designer on the ground that they cannot conceive him. Somehow I doubt that Werner is accurately conveying the objection of the physicists he's referring to. Conceiving a God is the simplest thing in the world. It's just anthropomorphism, projecting human characteristics onto non-human objects or concepts. The inability to verify a god, the inability to falsify a god, that's what a physicist would object to. We in NASA were often asked what the real reason was for the amazing string of successes we had with Apollo flights to the moon. I think the only honest answer we could give was that we tried to never overlook anything. I don't recall hearing of any Apollo procedures that involved the supernatural. It is in the same sense of scientific honesty that I endorse the presentation of alternative theories for the origin of the universe, life, and man in the science classroom. It would be an error to overlook the possibility that the universe was planned rather than happening by chance. Nothing of what is taught in a science classroom precludes planning by a designer. If there was a designer, our scientific learning is merely revealing how the designer designed it. As the answer to the possibility of a designer is outside the purview of science, there's no reason to include the question in science curriculum. While this series has made plain that planning is far more than a possibility, one could wish for more such honest science. In fact, most scientists do not want you reading these kinds of other scientists. Yes, thus the famous stereotype of science running around slapping books out of people's hands. The next quote is beyond fascinating. David's not exactly into underselling his arguments, is he? He's more of a hype man. The longest quote in the whole series. Oh boy. It comes from a Time Magazine article. The Economist, the Wall Street Journal, and now an opinion piece from Time Magazine. All the best direct science sources. Perhaps we can also expect some hard-hitting science quotes from People Magazine. Or a slideshow from BuzzFeed. Why science does not disprove God and shows more evidence God's existence in no way conflicts with science. I've been agreeing all along that science cannot disprove a general non-falsifiable notion of a creator God. So can we skip the longest of the series quote? Of course, what science can weigh in on is specific claims of proposed gods like Yahweh. But we'll come to that. We know that 13.7 billion years ago, a gargantuan burst of energy, whose nature and source are completely unknown to us and not in the least understood by science, initiated the creation of our universe. Note that even here, the author of the article acknowledges that science posits a source. It does not posit no source. It does not posit that nothing became something. Then suddenly, as if by magic, the God particle... The Higgs boson, discovered two years ago, came into being and miraculously gave the universe its mass. Why did this happen? The use of the words magic and miraculously are the author's characterizations to describe aspects of science that are not yet well understood. Indeed, it is similarly misleading to characterize Higgs boson as coming into being, as it is the Higgs field causing the effect and the Higgs field may well simply be an inevitable property of energy in space-time. At the time the Time article was written, 
2014, the confirmation of Higgs boson particles in the CERN Collider was just two years old. But it's misleading to say that Higgs boson was discovered then. There were groundbreaking papers in 1963 and 1964 predicting the existence of such particles based on experimental data. Exactly the kind of predictive power that the God hypothesis does not enjoy. In the 1950s, Time would have written, how did this happen? And now we know how. It's no shame to not yet have an answer, why did this happen? Indeed, a philosophical why is generally irrelevant. The better phrasing would be, what was the cause? Since David is such a fan of using quotes, let's look at one from the 1880s that is still poignant today. Into every gap, they put their delusion, their stopgap, which they call God. And theologian Charles Alfred Colson observed, There is no God of the gaps to take over those strategic places where science fails. And the reason is that gaps of this sort have the unpreventable habit of shrinking. In quoting this article, David is making a simple God of the gaps argument. For from within the primeval soup of elementary particles that constituted the young universe, again, as if by a magic hand, the quarks suddenly bunched in threes to form protons and neutrons, their electrical charges set precisely to the exact level needed to attract and capture the electrons, which then began to circle nuclei made of the protons and neutrons. It is not at all surprising to find ourselves in a universe capable of producing us. Instead, the miracle would be to find ourselves in a universe without the properties of producing us. See my puddle videos for more on this. All of the masses, charges, and forces of interaction in the universe had to be in just the precisely needed amount so that early light atoms could form. Eventually, the highly complicated double helix molecule, the life-propagating DNA, would be formed. Are you grasping all of this? I am. The article's author describes the observed properties of energy and matter, properties that are prerequisites for observation, and properties that may well not even be variable. Speculation that they could have been different doesn't require that they could have been different. I know this seems unsatisfactory to some Christian believers, but it's no different than me insisting that these seemingly fine-tuned properties of God requires an explanation. With or without a God, Ultimately, some brute fact must terminate the infinite regress of the question why. The great British mathematician Roger Penrose has calculated, based on only one of the hundreds of parameters of the physical universe, that the probability of the emergence of a life-giving cosmos was... You can't determine the probability of the universe being different without first understanding the mechanisms by which it could be different. Or indeed demonstrating that it even can be different in the first place. This would be like trying to calculate the outcome of a dice roll without knowing how many sides the die has, if there are duplicate numbers, and if the sides are equally weighted. Get this, 1 divided by 10 raised to the power of 10 and again raised to the power of 123. This is a number as close to zero as anyone has ever imagined. It is? Hmm. What about 1 divided by 10 raised to the power of 10, and again raised to the power of 124, 125. The scientific atheists have scrambled to explain this troubling mystery by suggesting the existence of a multiverse, an infinite set of universes, each with its own parameters. I'm not a huge fan of the multiverse hypothesis. 
as it feels like it's unnecessarily multiplying assumptions before we can conclude that alternate parameters are even feasible. That said, people far smarter and more intellectually invested than me do entertain the notion. But if it takes an immense power of nature to create one universe, then how much more powerful would that force have to be in order to create infinitely many universes? I suppose that depends on what you mean by powerful. If I'm capable of baking one cookie, then theoretically, I'm also capable of baking infinite cookies, given infinite time and ingredients. Or if a natural process can generate a single snowflake, we don't need a more powerful process to generate trillions of snowflakes. So the purely hypothetical multiverse, to begin with, does not solve the problem of God. I tend to agree. But then again, I've already stipulated that a deistic creator god has no falsification criteria to begin with. So this just falls under the same category. With all that we have examined, why are there not more scientists coming out in support of God's existence? Because they are unconvinced of the existence or necessity of God. A chief reason, there are others we will discuss later, that many will not acknowledge God's existence is because it also would be a change of religion for them. Literally. Think. Well... Few non-God believers would consider this to be a religion, just as Off isn't a TV channel. David could be onto something if instead he meant that accepting the existence of God would be a change in worldview. It is correct that one factor in our acceptance of a new proposition is how well it aligns with other propositions that we already accept. Most people cling at all costs to long-held beliefs with this stubbornness more applicable to religious beliefs than any others. Let's hear that one again. In our heads, applying the statement to David himself. Most people cling at all costs to long-held beliefs, with this stubbornness more applicable to religious beliefs than any others. Might a Christian like David equally have a hard time accepting evidence for Big Bang cosmology and biological evolution because of their religious commitments against them? I know that I did. Atheism and evolution are religions to vast millions, something they consider to be personal, matters of faith not to be contested. Don't try. I don't know anyone who categorizes their acceptance of evolution as a personal matter of faith. Also, accepting evolution doesn't require that one stops believing in God. Most people who accept evolution are not atheists. I repeat, this series is for the open-minded, hopefully you, not them. My mind is open. That's how I came to change my opinion on these topics. Is yours, David? A brief inset. While a subject for another time, at least realize the universe and Earth are not 6,000 years old as some claim. This comes from misunderstanding the Genesis account, which leads many to lose confidence in the arguments of creationists. I did not see that coming. David denies biological evolution, but accepts an old earth. This puts him at odds with the likes of Ken Ham's Answers in Genesis, or Eric Hovind's Creation Today on one side, and the theistic evolution of William Lane Craig and Biologos on the other. This is the same camp as Hugh Ross and his Reason to Believe ministry, but with a different twist. As a former Christian, I'm not here to tell anyone how to interpret the Bible, but here's David's take. Genesis 1-1 describes God creating the entire universe. Satan's rebellion occurred at some point between verses 1 and 2. 
because they had failed to overthrow their creator, the devil and his demons, like spoiled children who could not get their own way, wrecked the face of the earth. Earthquakes and volcanoes shattered the planet, causing geological mayhem. Poisonous gases filled the atmosphere, choking everything that breathed and shutting out sunlight. Oceans overflowed Earth's surface until the whole planet was covered with water. All life, dinosaurs, plants, insects, and other creatures, was destroyed. Verses 1 and 2 describe vastly different times and events. Verse 2 describes Earth's recreation. Young Earth creationists correctly date this to about 6,000 years ago, but Earth has existed for billions of years. Only very recently did God renew, recreate it for the first human beings, Adam and Eve. Not human interpretation, this is the Bible interpreting itself. From where I'm sitting, David clings to the worst of all positions, accepting some science but taking on all the problems found with the young earth position. But I'll leave that to you to evaluate for yourself. Now, don't miss the concluding part five. Until next time, this is David C. Pack saying, This is Paula Gia saying, Goodbye, friends. Later. Later.